Well, good afternoon. Earlier this year, I had commented in the Sermon on the Resurrection that a considerable amount of time could be spent on the evidence for the authenticity of the New Testament, by which I meant the historical and textual proof that it gives an accurate account of the Christian doctrine. This is a subject of critical importance, since we must have confidence that the source of our beliefs is true if we ever hope to convey this truth to others. Our focus today will be to look at some of this evidence, leaving the discussion of the Old Testament for another time, since it would be impossible to do justice to both in a single setting. At the end of the lesson, I'll be perfectly happy to answer any questions you might have, so be thinking. Suppose you're having a conversation and someone says, everyone knows the Bible is a fake, or how can you believe in something that has been translated so many times? What would you say to this? You might feel instinctively that these statements are wrong, but what sort of reply could you give? We're told in 1 Peter 3.15 to be ready always to give an answer to anyone who asks about our beliefs, but too often it seems that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, to quote Hosea 4.6. We know that there are arguments which can be made, we just often fail to make them. Now, the greatest evidence for the truth of the New Testament will not be found among dusty books or scholarly arguments, but rather in the changes we experience when we accept Christ's offer of salvation. To anyone who has accepted this gift, the truth is self-evident. Even death itself cannot shake it. Nevertheless, there is much which can be said in support of the New Testament from an historical and scholastic perspective, which I hope would provide encouragement to some, and further information to others. Now, it's often overlooked that the very first Christians did not have a New Testament to read as we do, but relied instead upon the oral teachings of Christ's followers. When the apostles were young and healthy, there wasn't a need to have a written account of Christ's life and teachings, since they could easily testify as to what they had seen with their own eyes the early Christian communities were familiar with these stories and practices. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians around 55 AD, it would be another probably 20 to 40 years before all of the Gospels would be committed to writing, and yet the practice of taking the Lord's Supper was already so well established that it was mentioned in verse 1123 without need of explanation. The New Testament that we have today consists of 27 books, four Gospels, 21 letters, the book of Acts, and the book of Revelation, covering everything from Christ's early life to his anticipated return, it provides a strong foundation for our faith in addition to a fascinating glimpse into the workings of the early church. In considering the evidence for its authenticity, there are really two types of authenticity we must look at. The first of these, what might be called historical authenticity, relates to how we can know that the text we hold in our hands is theologically equal to that used by the early church. And the second, what might be called internal authenticity, relates to how we can know that that text gives an accurate account of the Christian doctrine and that it wasn't simply made up. Taking the historical aspect first, to the extent that skeptics question the New Testament, this generally takes one of two forms. First, there's the approach that 
since the scriptures have been transcribed so many times, it is impossible to know what Christ's teachings originally were. In the same way that a teacher might give a message to one child who passes it to a second, who then gives it to a third, the argument here is that Christ's teachings, whatever they originally were, have either been lost or corrupted through the passage of time. To counter this argument, we need to look at how ancient knowledge has come down to us from the past. If you ask someone to describe how we can know that a modern text is the same as a long-lost original, they'll usually give you a blank stare. If you don't have the original text, after all, how can you be sure that what you're reading is correct? To illustrate how this works, suppose that I discover a formula that would allow me to turn straw into gold, and because I'm such a kind, generous person, I write out copies of all of this for all of you. And since you're all equally generous people, you write out copies for all of your friends as well. Suppose then that disaster strikes and my copy of the formula is destroyed. In a panic, I ask you to send me all of the copies you and your friends have so that I can take a look at them. Now when I look at all of these, say 40 copies in total, I notice that 36 are identical, two have spelling errors, one mixes a step in the process, and one has an additional ingredient. Is it possible for me to reconstruct my original text? Certainly. The spelling errors are easily dealt with, and it's more likely than not that one person would add an extra ingredient or mix a step up than it is that all of the others would forget to do this. Of course, the quality of any textual reconstruction will depend on the number of copies available to compare, with our confidence rising in proportion to the number of manuscripts on hand. Looking at some well-known non-Christian texts, for example, our confidence in Plato's works is based on only seven ancient copies which survive. Thucydides' history survives in eight manuscripts. Josephus's Jewish War in nine. And there are ten ancient copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars. Adding all of these together, we see that much of our knowledge of the classical world is based upon a mere handful of documents. Contrast this with the over 5,300 ancient Greek manuscripts containing portions of the New Testament. Some of these are one-line fragments from ancient scrolls, whilst others are full-size documents bound together in a type of book known as a codex. The Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus are two of the most famous and are nearly complete versions of the New Testament. Although the Vaticanus has as its name would suggest, been in the Vatican Library since at least the 15th century, the Sinaiticus was only discovered by accident in the 1800s in an Egyptian monastery. Today, the majority of its pages are stored in the British Library, but you can view the entire codex online if you're so inclined and able to read Greek. Together, these are two of the best-preserved New Testament records that we have from the early 300s. Some have theorized that they are two of the legendary 50 Bibles commissioned by the Christian Emperor Constantine in 331, although there's no conclusive proof of this. It's been observed, however, that it would have taken an entire life's wages to produce the Sinaiticus, suggesting that whoever put it together had more than average means. 
Now the oldest physical document that we have is the St. John's Fragment, or Papyrus P-52, kept at the Rylands Library in Manchester. Measuring about nine centimeters by six, it contains part of seven lines from John 18, 31 to 33, and is believed to date from around the year 125, although an even earlier date might be possible. The Bodmer papyri in Switzerland date from around the year 200 and contain most of the Gospel of John. And the Beatty papyri in Dublin contain most of the New Testament and have been dated to no later than the mid-200s. All of this is to show that we have a tremendous amount of evidence for what the early New Testament looked like, making it incredible to suggest that we can't be sure of the original teachings because they have been corrupted. If seven texts are good enough for the scholars of Plato, how much more so is the body of evidence for the New Testament? And this doesn't even include the non-biblical sources. In his letter to the Philippians, the bishop Polycarp, who was burned alive in the 150s for refusing to offer incense to the emperor, referred to several well-known passages from 17 of the books of the New Testament. This was a man who had studied under an apostle and talked with people who had seen Christ alive. Are we really to believe that his account of the scriptures was somehow corrupted? And what of Clement I, Bishop of Rome? His letter to the Corinthians refers to several of Paul's letters and was sent less than 70 years after the resurrection. Was he also guilty of believing a corrupted doctrine? So this now brings us to the second common historical argument, that the New Testament we have today is the result of an ancient conspiracy, either to fabricate Christ's existence entirely, or to suppress the real history surrounding him and the early church. With over 80 million copies of Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code sold to date, interest in this latter view is clearly alive and well. To give an example of what this argument normally consists of, though, consider the following passage taken from a posting on JesusNeverExisted.org. Constantine ruled that the name of the great Druid god, Hesus, would be joined with the Eastern savior god, Krishna, and thus Hesus Krishna would be the official name of the new Roman god. A vote was taken, and it was with a majority show of hands that both divinities became one God, with, of course, the implication that the New Testament was created after this council met to inspire faith in this new regime. Others sometimes claimed that this council met to turn Jesus the man into Christ the God or to suppress damaging alternative texts about his life. Through it all, the theme emerges that the Jesus we know is little more than a made-up fraud put forward by a power-hungry committee. Now, all of this is revealed as nonsense when we study the history of the early church. It is true that the Council of Nicaea was called in 325 to settle various issues arising from the Arian controversy, but it was hardly to invent Jesus any more than it was to suppress the real history of Christianity. And, for those who novelists would ascribe a controlling, sinister role to the Vatican, the entire Western Church sent approximately five representatives to the Council, with the remaining 300 or so coming predominantly from the southern and eastern parts of the Empire. 
It would be hard to believe that one could willingly embrace a deity invented by a council in place of the sincere Christianity which had prevailed for nearly three centuries. But it is even harder to believe that this new New Testament could have been introduced without any argument or controversy. How are the conspiracy theorists to account for this silence? What are they to make of the St. John's fragment or the references to our New Testament in Clement's letter? Why is our New Testament so similar to the BT papyri, copied at least 70 years before the church fathers supposedly invented Jesus? They might say that this only proves the invention happened earlier, but where is the evidence for this? What proof do they have? How would they have pulled it off? Consider that the Edict of Milan establishing tolerance for Christianity was not issued until the year 313. Before this, Christians were routinely persecuted by the Roman state. In 303, the Emperor Diocletian ordered the destruction of all Christian scriptures in addition to prohibiting Christians from gathering for worship. Christians were deprived of the right to go to court. Christian senators were removed from office. And Christian freedmen were subjected to re-enslavement. It is estimated that several hundred to several thousand Christians perished in this purge rather than comply with its demands. If they wouldn't surrender their Bibles in the face of all this, what threats could a handful of allegedly conspiring bishops use to ensure that their version of the New Testament was adopted in place of the original? Consider also that any whiff of scriptural heresy could quickly spark fierce public condemnation, with the Arian controversy in the 300s being one such example. Fights broke out between church members in Alexandria, clergy lost their jobs, and arguments quickly spread across the entire Christian world. Are we really to believe that these same people would have silently accepted a forged book about an inaccurate Jesus in place of the one they knew? If the Roman persecutions couldn't destroy the New Testament, what could? Also, who are these supposedly conspiring church fathers? Many of the council attendees we know by name. Some, like Nicholas of Myra, we even know by deed, with this saint once becoming so angry by a heretical speech that he punched the speaker in the face. Although he's commonly known today for his secret benevolence, I bet you'll never think of St. Nicholas or Santa Claus the same after that, will you? Or what about Paphnutius of Thebes? Before the Edict of Toleration, he had lost an eye in the persecutions and been condemned to work in the mines because of his faith. Would he really approve a false version of the New Testament? This wasn't some shadowy group, but men with clear records from known places in the Roman world. Men who had often suffered crippling injuries or disfigurement on account of Christ. We know who the council's most influential participants were and what views they held. And even the heretics often quoted from the New Testament to try to build support for their arguments. If there really was a conspiracy to introduce a new New Testament, why has no record of it ever been found? And there is one final point that we need to mention on this thought. Around 40 years after this church council met, a new emperor succeeded to the throne. Flavius Claudius Julianus was one of the smartest individuals to ever rule the Roman Empire. He was a brilliant tactician, a skilled writer, 
and also Rome's last pagan emperor. His mother was a Christian. He studied under Christian teachers, and his writings show a detailed knowledge of the Bible. Nevertheless, his rejection of the faith and embrace of paganism caused him to become one of the most powerful enemies ever faced by the early church. He required all public teachers to be approved by the state so that Christians were weeded out, and he sought to weaken Christian charities so that they couldn't serve the general public. He would frequently debate with Christians and philosophers, and yet he never once referred to the New Testament as being a work of forgery. This was a man with the full resources of the Roman state, who had all of the imperial archives and council records at his disposal, who despised Christianity, and yet who never argued that a secret council had made the New Testament up. Had a conspiracy really existed, he would have been perfectly positioned to reveal it. Now, having examined some of the evidence for the historical authenticity of the New Testament, it's now appropriate to turn our attention to the internal evidence. We've seen how our New Testament <coughs> excuse me, is doctrinally identical to that used by the early church, and that it wasn't the work of a conspiracy by the church fathers. But how can we be sure that it wasn't simply made up? One common objection is that we have no proof that the writers of the scriptures are the same people whose names are attached to the books. If you're looking for a verse in Matthew saying, Matthew wrote this, I'm afraid you'll be disappointed. But this doesn't mean that the texts can't be trusted. Remember the early Christians who relied on oral tradition. They knew what the apostles had preached to them, and the four Gospels and Pauline letters were quickly accepted by these communities as giving true accounts of Christ's life and teachings. Even so, the issue of who actually wrote the books of the New Testament is less important than people might think. In the ancient world, the author of a work was the one who stood behind it, rather than simply the person whose hand held the pen. We see this in John 19, when Pontius Pilate put a title on Christ's cross, saying, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. When the chief priests objected to this and wanted it to say, he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate dismisses them in verse 22 with, What I have written, I have written. Now it is highly unlikely that the governor of a Roman province, responsible for managing taxes, military defense, and civil administration over several thousand square kilometers, would have taken the time out of his busy day to personally handwrite messages on condemned criminals' crosses but this doesn't stop him from affirming authorship of the statement. In the same way, in 1 Peter 5.12, we see the apostle acknowledge this practice by saying, By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, I have written briefly. By the book's very text, we see Peter acknowledging that he had help in writing it, but this doesn't detract from him being the author of its sentiments. The early church was also quite good at separating the scriptural wheat from the chaff. In the so-called Gospel of Peter, for instance, one of the apocryphal books condemned in the second century, Christ's tomb was not only surrounded by the Roman guards, but also by the Jewish elders and a large crowd who had come to watch the resurrection. In the middle of the night, a loud noise comes from heaven and two angels pull a third figure from the tomb 
followed by a floating cross, which, when asked, have you preached to them that sleep? Answers, yes. Now we can see why perhaps the early church felt that this book didn't quite make the cut. Even though it bore the name of a prominent apostle, its account simply didn't match with what the early church had been taught about the events of the resurrection. If Christ's closest followers didn't necessarily expect that he would be raised from the dead, it is highly unlikely that a random crowd would have turned up to watch. Another argument is that the events of the New Testament didn't actually happen, but that devious or deluded individuals sought to invent them for their own purposes. This would be a rather bizarre lie, since we know from Tacitus and others that the early Christians often met with financial deprivation, painful injury, or even death, with ordinary believers sometimes burned alive as human torches or ripped apart by wild dogs and the early church leaders often martyred in equally horrific fashion. Nevertheless, suppose that you were to invent the New Testament out of nothing. Would you really compose it in its present form? Consider the reference in Mark 14.51 to a naked man running away from the scene of Christ's arrest. Why would you include this if you were just making it up? It's random. It does nothing to advance the main storyline, and since the verse doesn't even tell us who this person is, it deprives us of any meaningful reference as to why he's there. This is the sort of bizarre detail which no one would have just dropped into the story, but which makes perfect sense if it was remembered by someone who was a witness to real events. Or what about the references to the women at Jesus' tomb? The Gospels place the women as the first eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection, which is notable when we consider that under Jewish law, women were generally prevented from giving testimony as to what they had seen or heard. I was reading an article the other day in the Jerusalem Post which reiterated this position, with the women there prevented from giving evidence of someone's marital status as recently as last December. Granted, there were and are certain exceptions to this ban, and the Gospels were never intended to be legal documents. But one would have imagined that if the Gospel writers were truly making it up, that they would have wanted to include the most credible witnesses possible for the most important event in human history, perhaps something like the crowd of Jewish elders in the so-called Gospel of Peter, or some of the men who later became part of the early church's leadership. There are also certain things in the New Testament which would have been strange to include in a fabricated text. Consider the reaction in John 6 to Jesus' teachings about being the living bread. Many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Or the reference in Acts 28 to some of the Romans believing not what Paul preached. One would have expected these instances to have been left out of an invented text, since doctrinal doubt is hardly a winning sales pitch for attracting followers. Also, where are the responses to the anticipated objections? It is true, as some of our skeptical friends would point out, that there are certain passages in the New Testament which do not perfectly align with one another. A favorite example of this is the account of Judas' death. Matthew 27 records that Judas went and hanged himself after betraying Christ, whilst Acts 1.18 states that, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his entrails gushed out. 
Some have seized upon this discrepancy as proof that the texts must be erroneous and, in a rather tortured leap of logic, that none of the scriptures can consequently be true. This is to draw the wrong conclusion, however. Rather than being a contradiction, these two accounts of Judas' death are supplementary, with Judas indeed hanging himself, and shortly thereafter his body falling and bursting open. When an organic substance begins to decay, bacteria release gases which cause the body to swell. A few years ago in Taiwan, the corpse of a 50-ton whale which had beached itself was being transported through the city when it literally exploded and soaked the pedestrians in blood and entrails. One could easily imagine that on a smaller scale, if Judas's corpse were to fall after hanging for a few days, a similar experience could have occurred. I would also submit that the fact that certain accounts are not perfectly identical is a sign of strength rather than a weakness. When I would go to court for trials, we would always make sure that any witnesses were kept separated from one another and outside the courtroom so that they couldn't hear what the others were saying. When a witness would get on the stand, his or her account would sometimes differ slightly from what had previously been said since certain things might have been more important or notable in their mind, but in the main, the testimony would agree. When two witnesses would give perfectly identical testimony, however, there was a suspicion that they might have colluded, and further examination was required. The New Testament writers were men who told things like they were, with their own perspectives on the events, and who didn't seek to gloss over inconvenient or embarrassing statements. Peter probably would have preferred that it be forgotten that he denied Christ three times, but there it is in the Gospels for all of us to see. Doubting Thomas probably would have wanted a different nickname, but the events of John 20 give the account of his reaction to the news of the resurrection. The disciples always seem to be missing the point to many of Christ's parables in the New Testament, and yet they became the principal teachers of these lessons to others. Now, there are many more examples we could give about why the New Testament doesn't read like a PR statement or a propaganda article, but our time simply doesn't permit. Ultimately, each of us must decide whether we believe the New Testament and its teachings to be real. For my part, I have considered the evidence both within it and around it and have come to this conclusion. Some verses may be harder to understand than others, and there are a great many things which lie beyond human understanding. Nevertheless, I am persuaded that the challenges to the New Testament can be answered, and that, to quote 2 Peter 1.16, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Thank you.